I'm a for real cookie monster, and I love Goodness Gracious Lux Cookies. Featured on The View, Goodness Gracious Lux Cookies offers fresh baked cookies, frozen cookie dough, and gourmet cookie mixes online at ggluxcookies.com and in select retail stores. The sandwich cookies are my absolute favorite, like cake and cookies rolled into one. Get your cookie fix at ggluxcookies.com. That's ggluxcookies.com. Welcome to the Succeeding Over All Roadblocks LifeCast, a show about self-discovery and vibrating higher in every area of your life. Each week, I'll have conversations with some of my favorite people who are soaring over life's challenges. They'll share their struggles, but more importantly, the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Keisha Whitaker, entrepreneur and transformational speaker. Let's get ready to soar. February is Black History Month, and as with every episode, I am dedicated to honoring Black excellence everywhere I can find it. And this month, we will definitely be highlighting some people who are doing amazing, amazing things and honoring our legends and our and people who are now at the front lines of making change in our society. I have an amazing guest for the season premiere, and you will not believe who it is. I'm so excited to introduce Miss Karen Parsons, who is also known as Hillary Banks from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. After leaving acting behind, Karen has gone on to found Sweet Blackberry, which is a nonprofit organization, but also creates a number of award-winning videos dedicated to helping ensure black history and little known figures are known throughout the schools and curriculums across the country. And she has done an amazing job of giving and giving that knowledge to everyone. And so she's worked with a number of stars from Chris Rock to Queen Latifah, Alfred Woodard have been a part of her projects. And so she's here today to talk about the work she's been doing since then, her body of work before that, and also clearly a roadblock, which is what we talk about on this show. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to the author, the actress, and the activist, Karen Parsons. Hi, Karen. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining. I am so excited to have you for the season premiere. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm really happy you have me here. Thanks. Let's get into what's been going on in your life. I know, uh, for one, I want to talk about the significance of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It was an absolutely groundbreaking show. I just watched The Reunion uh, not too long ago. It was so good such a tearjerker and yeah. i was like wow Th- did not realize as we were watching it back then what the significance was how important it has been to the culture right and how it continues to impact people worldwide how do you feel about that oh well i, mean, I have to start off by saying i'm surprised um only in that i also i was you know i was much younger and i wasn't looking at what an impact the show was having. I wasn't aware of the impact that the show was having at the time. I don't think I could have known. I didn't, I couldn't see its longevity. I couldn't see any of this or let alone its relevance so many years later, decades later. But I have to say, you know, over, over all of the years, meeting people and hearing their impressions of the show, how the, what the, the impact the show had on them, people talking about the impact that the show had um, in our culture. I can't, say enough how honored I am to have been a part of something like that. To have affected people, individuals, they go into life and my contribution and and the show itself are a part of them. I know what that's like because there are things that are that way for me as well. So the fact that I hold that place for some people in their in their lives and and in like I said in the, the in the culture uh, some kind of impact, it's it just I'm deeply honored. I'm deeply honored and it and it's really wonderful to be able to look all these years later to look back at it and say wow we really we really affected people and not just 
brush it off as for many years I tried. I always dismissed it as as flattery. And it's so much more than that. It's not as simple as, as being flattered. And I am flattered, but it's far more than that. It's deeper than that. And um, I can't express enough how how much it means to me, how much of an honor it is to be a part, to have been a part of something like that. I rewatched some of it in preparation for this, uh-huh. and it really and truly captures the Black experience. I know from the Cosby show, we saw families that, you know, that was our first family that we saw as a Black family that had right. wealth and were professionals. And then Bel Air took it to a next level of having a family that was one of wealth. You had a judge, you had a professor, you had the wealth and the means and living in an affluent neighborhood like Bel Air, which was probably unheard of, you know, for at that time, other than like celebrities like OJ and people like that. But Mm -hmm. you think about the significance of that in, in the sense of, I guess it's, it's showing where they came from, and where they're going. Right. And so I love that the the black experience was shown from the standpoint of you had uh, Uncle Phil's parents who came down from the country where right. they talked about him slopping hogs as a kid. You talked about uh, Aunt Viv living in the urban communities and Will coming in from Philly at that time right. where Philly was kind of, you know, a little rough. A little rough. Yeah, a little rough. So, you, I mean, that was real. And then bringing in the hip hop culture, which was then just growing and burgeoning at that time. Absolutely. And so it was just a, such a microcosm of so many different things. And yeah, I, I mean, it, I, I was blown away watching it back to see how much was packed into that. And then not only that, but you saw class from a standpoint of black families uh, becoming upwardly mobile. So you have... Right someone in the family who's made it, they have wealth. And then, you know, the relatives come in, Aunt Vi and all the aunts come and you see that that's, the wealth was kind of the backdrop. It was more about the family dynamic right. to me that that I noticed. Yeah, I think it was interesting to see the different ways that manifested because it wasn't just one mono way of like, oh, black person becomes wealthy. They become like this. <laughs> they, they, they like this kind of thing. We were also different. You know, Hillary is very different from Carlson. They both had their eccentricities. But, you know, he's this young Republican and Hillary is just all about her vanity and herself and her own, her own personal, uh, bl- you know, blind ambition. And then you've got Ashley, who's, you know, far more, um, you know, it, obviously she's young, very young on the show, but she's going to, this is somebody who, who's so bright, so intelligent, who's going to, you know, as a woman, she's going to be at the top of her game. You also see where they all came from in terms of their, their guidance from their parents. Like you said, this professor, mother, but you also saw the dance episode. So you got to see this whole other side of her where she was a dancer and you see with Philip, he's a judge, but we saw that he was a lawyer before. And then like you also said that he, we saw his, there were episodes where you saw his activism uh, roots and you saw his parents. So you saw where, how he grew up. And so like these evolution of, of people and characters and how, and as well as the, the aunties when they showed up, how different everybody was. And that was one of the things that I didn't recognize that the show was offering was was showing so many such a diverse cast of black people we didn't have a lot of shows we had the we had cosby which was huge and we had different world and martin that was around the same time as us and it was really important i think in our show it started off as just being so you know it was funny these were these different characters were were opportunities for laughs but there was more there there was more going on especially when you get to know them year after year and and you go through situations with them you're dealing with different kinds of people and that's what i hear from back from people all the time is it was so great to see all these different black people they weren't just like you know because we didn't see it we didn't see a lot of black people on tv so when you saw them it was really it was really refreshing i think to see like you know you can be Carlton, <laughs> this is somebody that you might recognize in your life. And the wow, they're on television. And Ashley is somebody who you might aspire to be. And Hillary is hopefully somebody you don't aspire to be, but maybe that you recognize or recognize parts of yourself, you know, et cetera, as well as, uh, you know, the, the parents and 
Joseph, I mean, uh, Jeffrey. When you talk about rep- representation, we had a little bit more representation than most people. Cause I had a friend in France who mm-hmm. told me that she was like, love the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air because they didn't have hardly any black representation on TV. And so you think about the, in the UK, it's huge still yeah. and different countries and people are picking it up like it's brand new. And I so know. It's just, it's, it's that's so really cool. fun. Yeah. It's yeah. So that's cool been something that's been that. great is that you, this has been going on for, you know, years now, but I'll bump into, I'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh, it's so great because it was my favorite show. And now it's my kid's favorite show. And then 10 years later, somebody says the same thing to me. And then 10 years later, somebody's saying this, you know, so it's just mm-hmm. generation after generation is picking it up and it's becoming their favorite show all this time later. It has relevance. It has jokes that everybody that different levels of you know the kids get the parents get you know and there's and you get older you get jokes you maybe didn't get before so it's um it's chock full of stuff it's this you know big fat onion and it's fun it's it's it keeps giving too it's this gift that keeps on giving it's great yeah the thing i saw about hillary which i thought was so cool and actually i looked at hillary kind of like she was a stereotype that we did not see no. As black black women and girls growing up, we never like what they would call bougie. Like we never encountered that necessarily um, or even knew uh, black girls who had that much, you know, came from that much wealth. And then you right. were connected to celebrities and you and really, to be honest with you, I look at uh, Hillary. She had to me a lot of confidence. She yes. went out and got what she wanted. She didn't let people tell her who she was and who she wasn't. Yes. Um, I think. There was a lot of great qualities about Hillary and she may not have been as woke as right. people think she was, but there was an episode where you talked about global warming and explained it in detail. <laughs> and then the lady was like, well, where can I donate? You're like, I don't know. It was, yeah. so, <laughs> it was so cute. But right. at the same time, you knew about that issue. So I knew about, it wasn't, yeah, I knew about the issue, but it was also, we were taking a big van. Everybody was loading into a big you know, right. van to go get there. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it was, yeah, that was a really a fun that was a really fun thing about that character for sure. But I'm with you on her confidence. And I used to have so much fun playing her. And a lot of the reason was because I got to, you know, I, my mother was very, brought me up to be very polite. And, um, you know, you don't, if you don't have anything nice to say, you don't say anything at all, which is like the opposite of Hillary. (laughs) And, um, so it was fun to kind of be bad. And, but I realized also, what was really fun for me was her confidence. You know, I it felt good to slip into her. Judy Richmond, who was the costumer, used to say that Hillary showed up when I got dressed in the clothes because she would see me and she'd see me change. She'd see my body language change when as soon as I put the clothes on and the affectations, you know, and my physicality. And she's right, probably. But it was so fun to like zip up into this person who's very different from me. I mean, I wish I had the kind of confidence that Hillary had. I wish I could just zip it up like a unitard and just like go out into the world with that kind of brazen ambition, confidence, you know, no doubt that what you're after is the right thing and that everything's going to get out of the way for you. (laughs) You know, it was, uh, that was fun. I mean, there, there, that's an element of her, I would love to be able to bring into me. If you guys have not watched the reunion on HBO Max, I was just, I mean, I was teary eyed. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. weren't we all? Yeah. Yeah, And I saw the closeness that you guys have and still have today. So that's really cool to see. Yeah, we were fortunate. We really forged a family. It happened right away that we kind of fell in love with each other. Like right away, we just... I loved those people so fast. We were inseparable right away. We were with each other all the time. You know, Alfonso bought a house. I bought a house down the street. <laughs> we, you know, we spent so much time together, even when we weren't working. And um, and then we were fast family, and uh, and we we still are. I mean, I'm happy to say when I see everybody, we just fall back in where we were before. We trust each other. We love each other. I know that those people have my back. I know that they see me and they love me and I'm good with them always, you know, and they're all, they're, 
they are my family. And I think that's one reason it was with the, um, with Janet, I think that's why one other reason it was so, it hit everybody so hard. Um, it was difficult to, to be around for a while. I think it was difficult, the negativity that was hovering for a long time. It was definitely, it was like a, a, a huge weight lifted when, when she showed up, when she and Will got together for the first time in so long, and then when she and Daphne hugged, it just felt like, it was like all the, all the doves were released. <laughs> it was just so good, you know? It was like, yeah. we all needed that because we were a family, and it was nice to all, again, be like, yeah. I mean, I've seen Janet over the years a few times, but I didn't know how much that stuff that was at, that awful rift was affecting me too until everybody came together. And it just felt like, Oh my God, this is right. This is thank goodness. It just felt so good. It was so good to see her. It was so good to see everybody together and, and happy together. Oh, it was great. Yeah. I think it was good for us too, to see. I think so. You guys make amends because everyone loved her as a character. Uh, we, you know, saw the rift happen, but there wasn't the, the story, you know, now we understand fully the context a lot, of it, which is none of our business. Yeah, but yeah. just to understand the context of it now and to know, like I said, life is too short. We have yes. to, you know, make amends with people and, you know, we admit we're, we admit our wrongs and, and we, and we, and we, you know, we move on. And hopefully, you know, in me watching that, learning that, you know what, don't wait too long to address those things. Get, we were lucky that we were able it. to. I'm glad we were able to. I wish James had been there and been a part of that. He would have really appreciated that too. But I'm so glad that that they came together, that they decided to do that. Like you said, life is short. This is what we have. There's no need for this. There's no room for this other stuff. You know, you got to do what you can to, to make it okay. That's how I try to live my life is if I'm wrong, I'll admit it. I never do anything, you know, with an intention to anyone, but it's really... If I do, I want to make amends. I want to straighten it out and move forward. Um, so I I applaud you guys for definitely Will and Janet really, you know, mending that and then, you know, healing the family. Yeah, it took a lot. It took a lot. It took a lot of bravery, I think, for them to do that, too. And, um, yeah, I commend them as well. I, I, we could talk about that all day, I'm sure. But um, I definitely want to move into talking about some of the things that that you're working on currently and things you've been doing since you left Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You spent six years with them. Yes. And then, you know, that's a long time to be, you know, that close and day in and day out with someone, with you know, with a group of people and then move, move into a new journey. So what, what was that like for you? Which part? Leaving that or move it, getting to the yeah, other well, part? Well, the, transitioning to... Like right after the show, I know you had like you had some great films um, I, that we you know we consider like cult classics like Major Pain and right. Class Act and like stuff like that. So um, yeah, well, those I actually did Class Act and Major Pain during the run of Fresh Prince on our okay. break. Those are some things I did. Some other things afterward, but it wasn't that long afterward that you know and I did some I did some television and uh, actually did a show with Janet um, Dennis Leary called The Job. And I also created a show, I co-wrote, co-created, co-starred in a show called Lush Life with Lori Petty that uh, Yvette Lee Bowser of Living Single, the creator of Living Single, uh, co-created with us and um, executive produced. I, you know, it wasn't that long after Fresh Prince, I guess, that I, things started shifting. I mean, right away with that, with, with creating and writing. And I did start, a friend of mine, pushed me to go get into a writing class and uh, I with a particular instructor. And so I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go. You know, she really, really wanted me to go take this course. And so I did. And he was incredible. The class was great. And I realized how much I wanted to write, how much I loved it. And I'll tell you, when I stopped Fresh Prince, it was difficult. Like I said before, we were family. Now I grew up 
I was an only child and my dad was in my life, but he's, he was all over. He was, he wasn't like a dad, dad. He wasn't home like a dad, dad. So James Avery was very much like a dad, you know, like James Evans on uh, good times and the dad on Brady Bunch were like my dads growing up. And then when, as an adult, all of a sudden I had James Avery who used to call me daughter. He didn't call me Karen till the day he died. He, he called me daughter <laughs> and um, I loved it. And he treated me that way. He treated me like a daughter in a lot of ways. And I loved it. And I had suddenly, I, I, as an only child, growing up an only child on the show, I suddenly had siblings. I had a brother and a sister. And Will was my cousin, but he was also like very much like a brother or a really, you know, a tight cousin. And I didn't grow up with any of that. But for those six years on the show, I had all of this. I mean, I had this family. And, uh, when the show ended, it was, it was a hard for me, it was a hard separation. I didn't realize it at first that it was really affecting me. And then it hit me. It's funny. Um, I just mentioned this to somebody recently, but I went to school. One of the people I went to school with was Lenny Kravitz and Lenny's mom, Roxy Roker had been on the Jeffersons for like 11 years, I think. And I don't know if that was why he, I bumped into him after the show had gone off. And Lenny was like, well, how, you know, he's asking me how I was and stuff. And then he's like, no, but really, how are you? How are you now? And it felt to me, it hit me like it was pointed. Like, how are you since the show's gone off? You know, are you, are you really okay? And I don't know if he meant all that, but that's how it hit me. That's how it landed. And it was the first time I felt like I had been truly confronted with the question. And, um, and so it became the first, it was the first time I really, it really hit me. And I realized I'm having a hard time with this, you know, it was six years. I was there, you know, just about every day and weekends you're doing press and the summer you're trying to do other jobs, but you're doing press and you still have that connection. That was hard. And I started to make my way, you know, but when I found the writing, I found something. I, I just started spending my days just writing all the time. But I didn't talk to a lot of people about it because I think I thought, I mean, as far as wanting to be a writer, I didn't, I think I was afraid people wouldn't take me seriously, especially having played, been an actress my whole life and played a character that wasn't exactly who you'd think of as a novelist. (laughs) So that was in terms of the transitioning, it was an odd time. You know, I was still, I was in acting workshops. I was still auditioning, but I had discovered writing and I kept a lot of it kind of private you know that that was something i really wanted to do it would be years later before um and it would be somebody nudging me forward and 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 saying you need to write a book and somebody in a position to get my book out to people that it would take that for me to finally let everyone know that this is what i want to do that's something that I think about when we are in our different seasons of life, there's times where you think about, and I just had a conversation earlier today about this, you know, in my twenties, I thought going up the ladder and getting these titles and going, you know, moving my career forward. And I had a director title at, you know, age 26, 27. And I'm like thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to make it. I'm going to go, you know, I've been to the Olympics. I've done this, I've done that. Like, I, I know that I can write my own ticket. And then it just hit me like these anxiety attacks and things were happening and the stress of it all. And I started realizing that, okay, my life, my identity is tied up in these titles and in who I think I am and not who I really am. And it was kind of a wake up call for me to say, okay, you've got to get back to center. And I think what I'm hearing from you is saying, okay, this is a huge shift in my life. This is who I've, you know, been for so long and yeah. people know me as an actress. And, you know, I, I understand that trepidation of stepping into another role and, you know, thinking, what are people going to think if I do yeah. this and do that? And I'm still kind of in that season, but I don't care anymore. I'm just yeah. moving out of that. And I love that you kept it to yourself. Because sometimes when we're in those seasons, we have to, we have to protect. Yeah, I, had, those I think I had to protect it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know. So. But I'll say I want to say something because you just said you you dealt with anxiety. Mm-hmm. I 
when I left the Fresh Prince and when I was doing other stuff, somewhere along the line, when I was auditioning, I started having a horrible stage fright. Go figure. <laughs> it was like, you know, you, for years, you're getting up in, a live, in front of a live audience every week. I mean, and I'm, and mind you, I got it sometimes on Fresh Prince. I got it the first time we shot. And then every sometimes, like I remember in the sixth season, there was a show we were doing and I was so nervous. And I don't know. I'm like, this is the sixth season. What's going on? Why am I freaking out? And then, you know, then the next show I was fine. And mostly I was fine. Did you dissect why that was happening? I think, I mean, I have my ideas of what I think it is or was. It's one thing when you don't have anything to lose, when you don't have anywhere to fall, right? And you just keep going. But when you're up here and everyone's looking at you and going, well, what are you going to do next? That can be a tremendous pressure, a tremendous pressure. And I think for me, I think it was. I think I would go into auditions. I would have worked like crazy on it. I knew what I was going to do. And I would get in to the room and something in me you know, was just afraid that everyone was going to be looking at, I, you know, one of the first places it happened actually says it all was I was auditioning for a friends of mine, producer and director team, friends of mine who are real champions. I mean, of me, like they are just, they're great. They're great. And I never worked with them before. Although I had worked with one of the, I had met them because I worked with the wife of one of them. And um, I had a great experience. And so now they had a project that I was right for. And they were so excited because they, they wanted to cast me. <laughs> they were like, it's our friend and she's perfect for the role. And she's been on this show, which is only good for us. And this is great. This is perfect. And I was excited. It's my friends. It's a great part. It's a good project. And I don't you know, I showed up. <laughs> I think I did the first audition maybe without them. And I was fine. But I came in and when, when I had to audition for the two of them, I choked. And that wasn't something I did. And I just completely choked and left with my tail between my legs. And I was like, I can't believe I just blew. It was like it was handed to me and I blew it. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the last time I would have an experience like that. And I think it was because everything was right there in front of me. It was like it was so easy that I just sabotaged it. I was just this part of me that was like, oh, my God, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. You're not going to be what everyone expects you to be or they expect you to be great. And how can you be as good as they expect? I think all of these things were probably going on someplace in me, not consciously, but they were going on enough to stop me from being able to do my work. It was really, it was really a drag. This went on with a lot of stuff. I ended up working with an acting coach finally, who she recommended beta blockers finally as just, just cause it stops the fight or flight thing that happens so that you, cause I would literally be in an audition and I would all of a sudden, I'd be sitting like, you know, like uh, in the corner on the wall, on the ceiling, looking down, watching the whole thing as opposed to being in it. So the beta blockers actually, you know, started to help me get in, get into the experience of getting through an audition, being present, not having that thing happen. And then I only used them probably two, maybe three times, but it was enough just to, for me to feel myself be present again and be like, oh, you're fine, Karen. You don't, you're okay. You're okay. You know what's going on. You're okay. And then I got past it. But it was a it was a devastating period. It was a really difficult period. It's not like I have a million roles to go up on. <laughs> there, aren't, there weren't like a ton of roles for people, you know, for women like me at the time. And um, and there I was going in and blowing quite a few of them. But I'm okay now. <laughs> yes, you are. And I can definitely relate to that. And I know the feeling and having stepped out and started a business not once, but twice. It's really that first time I gave up on myself too soon. Yeah. You know, looking back on that, I I lost a lot of time and I was beating myself up about it. And I could have done this and I could have done that. And like you said, having those opportunities just handed to you and the self-sabotage because your mind is working overtime thinking about all the things that can go wrong instead of all the things that can go right. Right. It's a a lot of uh, perfectionism too, you know, just really thinking, and that can be completely, you know, paralyzing trying to 
to be perfect, trying to be what everybody wants, trying to be the, and you're supposed to, you know, I'm, I'm, everyone's expecting this of me, all that stuff. And I have to say that that's one thing that's this, that whole experience has taught me because now I go to schools and conferences and I speak at things all the time. And I used to always have to have a script. Often I don't have anything anymore. I just, you know, I've gotten to where I feel a lot more like it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. People are gathered here or people there at the audition because they want, we're all in it together and everybody wants, for the most part, people want it to go well and they want you to do well. There will be people that don't want you to do well. And I do, there is a situation where I felt some people didn't want me to do well that actually haunts me. And I think that that also has a little bit of something to do with, it's almost like, it's like in school with the, you know, the kids that hate you and judge you. And, and it's like, you could have all these friends and then you've got like three girls over there who are like, and that's all you can think about. My husband always says it's like the picket fence. You've got one broken picket and all you can think of is that, that one. And everything else is just like, you're great. You're doing a good job. We're here for you. All the support. One person that's looking at you going, you know, it's like on the comments on anything in the internet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, And, yeah, you got to let that stuff go. And I, I feel like you are like, I'm like, are we twins right now? (laughs) Because at our birthdays, I noticed we're like very close. Like this Libra energy is (laughs) happening. (laughs) But I was just like, my goodness, like that has been kind of my story of, you know, worrying about, okay, who's, who's hating on me now? And who's going to try this? And who's going to try that? But you know, I had to tell myself when I used, I used to read the Bible every day, but when I was younger and there was these scriptures that I would always focus on. And even when people tried to sabotage me, there was one thing that I know is that what God has for you is for you. Nobody can stop it. It doesn't matter how hard they try. And they may try to get in the way. They may be successful at, you know, one thing or another. But in the end, one is all things work together for the good. Yes. And then what's for you is for you. So if that's the case, no matter what obstacle or roadblock comes in your path, it will all work together for the good. And that was something that I have to continually remind myself of. And one of my good friends says, let the haters do their job. Don't do it for them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's another quote. I want to see if I can find it for you really quickly. I just okay. see if my phone will hold up over here. There's a okay. quote, too, that reminds me a little bit of what we were talking about that has always struck me and meant a lot to me. I don't know if you've heard it before. Hold on a second. It's attributed to Nelson Mandela, but it's actually Marianne Williamson, and it's about shining. Here we go. Well, and this is part of it. I don't know this isn't the whole thing, but this is part of it. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And there's more to the quote that basically goes on. Yeah, as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. And it goes on as well to talk about, like, basically, like, who are you to dim your light for others? I mean, I think a lot of us also, there's, there's this thing of feeling, there's some part of us subconsciously that actually knows we've got greatness. It's like you're saying what God has intends for you, that's yours. And there's a part of us that I think that knows is, you know, if we, yes, we're fearful of falling short, but we're also fearful of shining too bright. I think there's something subconsciously that keeps us, you know, because of haters and because of people are going to have a problem and they're going to see us, they're going to see us shine, they're going to want to bring us down. And yet when we shine, not only are we doing what we're supposed to be and we're doing, but we are also giving other people permission to do the same. We're telling everybody, like, you know, shine your light. You know, we're, giving, we're saying that for everyone. It encourages everybody to do the same. Um, so I think it's, it's a, that quote always rings with me. I think we tend to sometimes dim ourselves and sabotage ourselves as a, also to not shine so brightly. But we have to. We have to. 
We do. And I that's a perfect segue into the fact that you are shining and you are shining a light on hidden figures in black history. You know, we so very often hear about the same people every month, every February. They, you know, bring out Dr. King and who, yeah. you know, these amazing individuals who have changed the course of history for us yes. and not just for us, but for the world. Yes. But there are some that we don't even think about. I mean, I was telling my mom, I said, every black person from slavery forward is like black history. Like there's someone who had to create a mop, someone who had to create a dustpan. Somebody, they didn't give them tools to go out and do the stuff they had to do. That's the you know? thing, yeah. Yeah, you, ha- you hear people often say, when they find out about the incredible, so many, this wealth of inventions that came from black people and people are like, oh, a black person didn't invent that. You're just saying that. And it's like, well, no, it, not only is it true, but think about it. Think about it for a minute. Think about it. Think about the limited resources, but all of the responsibility and the duties that Black people had. They had so much they had to do, but they had limited resources. They had to think outside the box all the time. All the time. Mm-hmm. So of course, they were the, of course, they were inventing like crazy. You right. know I mean? Necessity is the mother of invention. Thank you very much. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that's it. And so it always kills me when people say that. I was like, well, don't you think about what you just said? But yeah, I, I you know, I grew up, um, my, my mother was a librarian and I spent so much time in the library. But then as an adult, my mother still was working in the library and she was heading the Black Resource Center at, at the particular library. And I was an adult now, but she would call me and tell me stories about people in Black history that she heard about that she, you know, were just little known stories. And she told me the story one day of Henry Box Brown, an enslaved man who literally mailed himself to freedom in a box, had a box built, got inside, had it nailed shut, postage applied and sent from Virginia to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he went, it was a 27 hour journey. He went by wagon, boat, train, arrived across state lines. And when they opened it, since there were no slaves in uh, Pennsylvania, he or in Philadelphia where he was, they uh, he was a free man, and he had escaped slavery through this incredible ingenuity. And I just couldn't believe this story was true, and I was just blown away by it. But then I was blown away by the fact that I had never heard it, and none of my friends had heard it. And I thought this just makes no sense. Like, why don't we know this? Why aren't we taught this? And I wanted to bring his story to kids. I thought it's such a great story for a picture book. And then my mom would tell me more stories. I would uncover more stories. And I decided I just wanted to have a series of books about real people in Black history that you don't hear about. Incredible, empowering stories that teach kids what they're capable of and and show them that these uh, tremendous obstacles are actually opportunities for greatness. And so I started Sweet Blackberry. And our first uh, story was the journey of Henry Box Brown, about Henry Box Brown. And we did them as, uh, because self-publishing wasn't as easy at the time as it is now. So I did them as these short animated films with a single narrator. And so Alfre Woodard came on board and she narrated um, the journey of Henry Box Brown. And uh, then I did I did Garrett's gift about the inventor Garrett Morgan, who invented, among other things, a traffic signal. Queen Latifah did the narration for that. And they're like picture books come to life, light narration with this one person kind of telling you a story. And then we, Chris Rock did Janet Collins, the first black prima ballerina. And uh, Lawrence Fishburne did Bessie Coleman and um, the first black female aviator um, whose story is amazing. And I, I'm happy to say, this is, this is the book actually right here. I'm happy to say that um, Flying Free is our first they just came out. It's our first hardcover picture book. The rest of it were films. And then we made that one as well into a, a book. So that's just really been an incredible accomplishment. We have Garrett's, the story of Garrett Morgan coming. It's called Saving the World. Oh, God, it has a long title. It's a little different from Garrett's Gift. But that comes out in the spring as well as a hardcover picture book. So I'm really excited about those. You've also written your own book. Um, yeah, How High the Moon. Yeah. Talk yeah, about- I wrote, this is just over here. I've got my whole like setup here for you. 
Um, but I have How High the Moon is my, is my first novel, which was really exciting. And like I said earlier, I, you know, I had somebody in my life, a friend of mine who knew me, uh, my friend Mark, actually, we met when he was a journalist and I had just finished Fresh Prince. And so he caught me after the show while I was writing every day. So he knew me that way. And so we were friends for a while. We were, we'd lost uh, track of each other, got back in touch. We actually ran into each other at a party and, um, and turned out he was a literary agent. And I just didn't think of it, of anything for my writing. I just was like, Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. He had been in publishing and, and I knew that, but this was, I thought this is great. Good for you. We went to, I thought we were, he wanted to hang out one day. I wanted me to drop by the office, but instead he had been following what I was doing with Sweet Blackberry. And like I said, he knew me as a writer and the Sweet Blackberry, I write all of the stories. And he said, I think you need to write a novel. <laughs> and, you know, here I am not writing, feeling guilty about it every day. Cause you know, I'm, you know, I'm a mom and I'm trying to do other things. I'm working with Sweet Blackberry, but the writing that I wanted to do, I just wasn't giving the time to. And I was always carrying this quiet, private guilt about it. And here somebody comes along and, you know, and sees right through it and just says, I think you need to write a novel. And with that vote of confidence, I pitched him a couple of ideas and he like really loved one of them. I went with it and it became How High the Moon. And next thing you know, we were taking the book out and having a bidding war. And all of a sudden I was in this whole new world of writing and uh, it's been amazing. It's been incredible and exciting and liberating. And I feel like this quiet private person who was afraid to share this, I, it, it's just changed me so much. I, there's a, it's given me a whole new confidence in myself now that I'm able to just be true to that and say, this is what I do. Yes, it's not perfect. I'm still learning. But look what I, I feel really good. Like, this is, I did this. Uh, I had a question about, so you're a mom, you said, I think you have two teenagers. Yes. And one about to go to college pretty soon and all of that stuff. So did you write your book? Um, were you had, had you been working on it over the years or was it something that you waited until no. after you were you busy raising kids? Like what was No, the... it wasn't like I had the book just, you know, like there's a story I just want to tell it that I got to get to one day. It wasn't like that. I, I wanted to, my mother always, my mother grew up in South Carolina, um, a little town outside of Charleston, South Carolina in the forties. And to hear my mom talk about it, she had the greatest childhood. Oh, they had so much fun. They had the farm and you know, all of her siblings and everything was just so great and peachy. My mom was always very positive. And I, it took me a while to finally say, well, wait a minute, the forties, the South, you, you grew up in the Jim Crow South, mom, you got to tell me something more. You got to tell me how, you know, how was it such a great, happy childhood? Like, what was it really like? Was it ever dangerous? Were you frightened? What was it, you know, what was your life like? I got to, I wanted to kind of step into her shoes and create a combination of myself at 11 years old and my mother and walk, be there in the 1940s in a little town outside of um, Charleston and see what it was like and see how, and because she genuinely had a good childhood. I wanted to see how that happened. I wanted to see why that was. And so I created this story, How High the Moon, uh, the protagonist is Ella little girl who um, lives with her, her grandparents and her cousins in this town. And her mother is up in Boston trying to be a jazz singer. She is a jazz singer up there. And, um, and she idolizes her mom. Her mom is black. Her grandparents are black. Her cousins are black. And Ella is really light and gets teased about the color of her skin and called a zebra. And she doesn't know who her dad is. She can't get straight answers about it. And so she's wondering if maybe he is white. And um, what does that mean for her uh, living in where she does at the time that she does? And she gets the opportunity to go see her mom. 
And she learns some things, unexpected things about her mom while she visits her up in Boston. And she also learns about how different things are for black people in Boston than they are down in South Carolina. Um, it sees a whole different world. And when she comes, goes back to South Carolina, she finds out that a good friend of hers, George Stinney, has been arrested. He's been accused of murdering two little white girls. And this character is based on the real character, a real character, real person, George Stinney Jr., who, for people who don't know, George Stinney Jr. was the youngest person ever executed in the United States at 14 years old. He was put in the electric chair at 14 years old. He was so small, they had to sit him up on top of books because he wasn't tall enough to reach the headpiece. He was accused of killing two little and convicted of killing two little white girls, which you know, many years later, decades later, after he had died, they would retry the case and realize that it had indeed the initial case uh, trial had been a sham and they would throw it out and he'd be exonerated. But this was too late. This is after George had already been executed. I would come across George and his story often when researching Sweet Blackberry. And I'd see his face, this mugshot, this little boy. And I knew about his story. My friends didn't know about the story. Nobody knew about it. But it wasn't an empowering or inspiring Sweet Blackberry story. So How High the Moon turned out to be the perfect place to to bring George's story. Because he lived... He lived in the 40s in a little town outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Not the same one as my mother, but not that far away. And so it made sense to bring him into the story and have an opportunity to tell a little bit about him to people so he's not entirely forgotten. And so people, it just scratches the surface. And if anyone wants to, they can look a little deeper and find out more about what happened and the injustice that he faced, because it's important we don't forget. And it kind of reminds me of Lovecraft Country, where they kind of put Emmett Till's story yes. into, you know, into the actual show. And I thought that was, and, and Tulsa and some other and Tulsa, events. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. That was really But it's cool. great because it's like, so many people were like, I didn't know about Tulsa, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. until Lovecraft. The truth has to, to come to light. Yeah. If we, we have to deal with these things and we can't. If we whitewash it, if we start eliminating things from our history books or, you know, picking and choosing what stories we tell and we don't deal with how horrendous some of these things were because it's just uncomfortable, education is the key. I could talk about education gaps all day. I could talk about... And that's that's one of the things with the Sweet Blackberry stories that I would love to be able to do is simply by telling these stories, introducing children at a really young age to the accomplishments that so many people have made to our everyday life. I think it helps, not only does it help black children, black children see themselves as uh, these contributions that have been made and what they're capable of. It makes all children recognize what, you know, the, what they, they are capable of because they see these hurdles that they overcame, right? But on top of it, it helps children who aren't black and brown look at their neighbors and, and see the accomplishments that, people that look like them made too, right? So all together, these children are coming up and the landscape of race is different for them if they have an appreciation of these things. These are things that are being, it's not like, oh, the history books just kind of forgot them. No, they're being deliberately kept out of the books. And that is changing how people view themselves and their history and their ancestors and their their own capability as they go into the world. Because they're not seeing that they accomplished things. They're being told certain propaganda that goes in, that creates who they are. On the cover, on the on the beginning of the Sweet Blackberry website, if you go to the Sweet Blackberry, sweetblackberry.org, we have a clip. We talk a little bit about Sweet Blackberry. In the very beginning of that clip, we talk about the Dolly test. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. You are. In the Dolly test, for people who don't know, is they would give little kids, little black kids, two dolls, a black doll and a white doll, and ask them which is the good doll, which is the bad doll, which is the pretty doll, which is the ugly doll. And you see time and time and time again, little black children, little, always pointing to the black doll as the bad doll, the ugly doll, the white doll as the good doll, the pretty doll. I mean, one of the clips that I show with the Dolly test, because it started back in the late uh, 30s, 
but they started doing these things, but they've done them on and on over the decades. And there's one with Anderson Cooper and CNN, and he's doing it with a little girl. And she's pointing to her little, her brown skin, and she's saying, I don't like brown. It's, uh, it's yucky. I don't know why, but it is. And she must be four years old. And this little girl is learning to hate herself, to hate how she looks. And she doesn't know why or where the messages are coming from. And I think we have to understand they are when they are, they are little and they are soaking up all of the messaging that they're getting through our society, not just the media, the media is a huge part of it, but all of the messaging all through society is telling them these things. And we need to do all that we can to work to undo this, not just to not do this, but to undo this damage. We need to work hard and we can't allow people to, um, well, you know, we just, we just need, that's what, that's the active work I think that we all need to be doing. And uh, that's one of the areas that I think Sweet Blackberry is helpful in bringing these stories to kids. We've had covered a lot of ground yes. today and I appreciate you taking the time and, um, you know, is there anything next coming up for you? I did a movie with my family, I acted, called Sweet Thing. My husband is a is a filmmaker, and he directed it, and my kids are actually starring in it. I have a smaller role in it, but um, it's called Sweet Thing. And right before the pandemic, we were in festivals. We won an award in Berlin, and then pandemic hit. <laughs> and so all the festivals kind of went, yeah. So we'll see what happens if they're able to pick that back up. It does look like a film's going to get distribution. So it's called Sweet Thing. Um, I would just say keep an eye out for it when it does get distribution. Um, looks like it's happening. And um, and right now I'm working, like I said, I'm writing some other things. And uh, hopefully I'll have something to talk to you about and come back. Of talk course. to you about something later. Yeah, very you have some very cool stuff going on. So where can people... I have it on the screen that they can go to Instagram to to Sweet Blackberry, and I'm sure, sure that's the handle for all of your social media. Is that's there. you can also go to Karen Parsons on Instagram. I'm at Karen Parsons, and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, both Sweet Blackberry and Karen Parsons on both there, and then on the website we have SweetBlackberry.org for more information um, and for for purchasing uh, Sweet Blackberry products as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Miss Karen. This has been an amazing experience for me to just sit down and talk to you and learn more about everything that, you know, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, and all the great things that have come out of, you know, those peaks and valleys. So thank you so much you. for sitting down with me and having this conversation. Thank you. It was good to talk with you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Succeeding Over All Roadblocks LifeCast. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Soar LifeCast for more tips and motivation. You can also email questions to SoarLifeCast at gmail.com. Be sure to catch new episodes every week and leave a review of the show. Until then, keep soaring. Keep soaring.